0: We thank you for listening. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. I am your host, Larry Leese, And on today's episode of Cold Case Friday, we dive into Missing in Minnesota. Where is Joshua? But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Audible, for sponsoring this episode. Audible is a subscription service that allows you to buy audiobooks that you can listen to on your phone. Audible allows you to choose from a gigantic array of audiobooks narrated by amazing narrators that you can listen to from anywhere. Right now I'm listening to The Dead Zone by Stephen King, narrated by Oscar-winning actor James Franco. It's the chilling story of a high school teacher who falls into a coma and wakes up with psychic abilities. In all seriousness, audiobooks are great for when you're alone and maybe want to stop with YouTube. Check them out today, use the link in the description. You could get a free 30-day trial and free audiobook at your choice by going to audibletrial.com/larry21. As always, thank you so much for watching and listening, and we will begin our story. Apologies if I say his last name wrong. Joshua Gaiman was a junior at Saint John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. He went to a party with a few of his friends on the evening of Saturday, November 9, 2002. It was a small gathering of less than 10 people, and it was held in a men's Court dorm room. Josh left the, party, or left the room shortly before midnight, and his friends assumed he was going down the hall to use the bathroom. When he didn't return after 15 minutes, they wondered if he had decided to return to his on-campus apartment. They tried calling him there. When they got no answer, they thought he was already asleep. Josh wasn't asleep though, and he never made it back to his apartment. He was never seen again. Josh grew up in Maple Lake, Minnesota. He was a political science major at St. John's, and he was a popular student with a lot of friends. St. John's was a fairly small school with about 1,800 students, located 75 miles northwest of Minneapolis. It provided a quiet and tranquil learning environment. Surrounded by acres of woods and a number of lakes, students would often joke that they were separated from the rest of society by a pine curtain. They viewed their campus as a utopian place and rarely thought about safety. Josh planned on a future in politics after graduation. He was the treasurer of the pre-law society and the co-captain of the university's mock trial team. An honors student, he was considered responsible, logical, and very organized. He tutored other, other students and loved to spend hours debating political and legal issues. His grandmother had served two terms in the Minnesota House of Representatives, and Josh wanted to follow in her footsteps. He even used Senator Josh as his email name. Josh spent the afternoon before the party working on a paper he was writing about Alexander Hamilton. He then relaxed with a couple of friends at his apartment for a few hours, drinking beer and talking about the future. Around 11pm, the group decided to meet up with a few other friends, so they left Josh's apartment walked the short distance across campus to Menton Court. There, they continued drinking beer and played a couple of card games. Friends saw Josh leave the room about 30 minutes after arriving, and assumed he was just going off to use the restroom. No one reported seeing Josh leave Menton Court, and no one would recall seeing him walking back to his apartment. His movements, once he walked out of his friend's room, are completely unknown. Josh was scheduled to be at a mock trial meeting the next afternoon at 2.30 p.m. When he didn't show up, several of his teammates tried tried to reach him at his apartment, but got no answer. It was out of character for Josh to miss any meetings, so his friends immediately feared something was wrong. After comparing notes, they realized that no one had seen Josh since the night before. His car was still parked in his assigned parking spot, and nothing seemed to be missing from his apartment. Concerned? They alerted campus police that they believed Josh was missing. The campus police were not initially worried, although it was unlike Josh to disappear. He was a 20-year-old college student. They assumed he had simply met up with some other friends and taken off for the night. They conducted a cursory search of campus that night, but found nothing to indicate where Josh might have gone. Josh's friends and classmates hoped he would show up the next day with a good story about where he had been. When he was absent from his classes on Monday morning, they knew something was wrong. They called the Stearns County Sheriff's Department and reported Josh missing. Deputies conducted a massive search for Josh that day, combing through the entire 2,400 acres of St. John's campus, as well as 700 adjacent acres of woodland. Search dogs were brought in to see if they could track where Josh might have gone when he left Court in order to go back to his apartment in St. Mauer House. Josh would have had to cross over Stumpf Lake using one of two bridges. After Tracking dogs seemed to pick up a scent near a culvert at the east end of the lake, Deputy was worried that Josh might have fallen into the lake. Although the waters were relatively calm, the water temperature was only a few degrees above freezing. If Josh had fallen in, he would not have been able to survive for long. An extensive search of the lake failed to produce any evidence that Josh was in the water, but police would continue to monitor the area. A Minnesota State Patrol helicopter flew over the campus using infrared radar, but found nothing relevant to the search. Deputies on horseback scoured the wooded area surrounding the campus, and volunteers assisted in searching the campus. Police contacted all the hunters who had participated in a controlled deer hunt near campus on Sunday afternoon, but none of them had seen anything unusual in the woods. Josh's parents arrived at the university on Monday afternoon, and they made tearful pleas for information about what had happened to their son. Brian, the father, would spend the next several nights sleeping in his son's apartment, speaking with students about Josh and gathering ideas for possible search areas. He participated in several news conferences and made a passionate plea for residents in the area to check their properties for clues to Josh's whereabouts. He was convinced Josh had been abducted, The police found nothing to indicate any foul play had taken place, and they believed that Josh had most likely fallen into the lake and drowned. They pointed out that Josh had been drinking prior to his disappearance, and may have stumbled into the water and been too intoxicated to get out. His friends, however, noted that Josh had not seemed to be at all impaired that night. Although they admitted he had consumed about ten beers, he had done so over the course of six hours, and had appeared to be perfectly sober during the walk to Menton Court less than an hour before he went missing. Members of the National Guard were sent to the campus on Wednesday, and they went through the entire area a second time to make sure nothing had been missed during the initial search. The university also allowed law enforcement access to all campus buildings, including dorms, classrooms, and the abbey. Searching through the private living quarters of the priest who stayed in the abbey would normally have required a search warrant but the school allowed deputies unhindered access to the location and cooperated fully to the investigation into Josh's disappearance. Nothing was found to indicate Josh was being held anywhere on campus. Over the course of three days, an area of 20 square miles was thoroughly searched multiple times, but nothing was found. Police grew increasingly convinced that Josh would be found in one of the lakes on campus. They worked with university officials to lower the water level in Stumpf Lake Though the lake was fairly shallow, the water was very murky. Divers were sent in several times without success, so the lake was dragged once the water level had been lowered. Again, there was nothing found to indicate Josh was in the lake. Divers were sent in again, and a week later, this time with side scan sonar equipment, they gave them a detailed look at the bottom of the lake. They found no evidence of Josh. Detectives interviewed Josh's family, friends, and classmates, but found nothing to indicate he would have planned his own disappearance. He was known around campus for being responsible and level-headed, and he was doing well in all of his classes. A search of his computer turned up nothing. His search history was free of anything incriminating, any favored humor websites and political discussion groups. loaded the afternoon before he disappeared. All of them pertained to his research paper on Alexander Hamilton. While Josh's parents continued to believe that he had been abducted from campus, police were still leaning towards the theory that he had fallen into a lake and drowned. They noted that if he had ended up in the water, weather was going to play a huge part in their effort to recover his body. If the air temperature stayed consistent, they believed he could float to the surface within a day or two. If temperatures started to drop, ice would start to form on the lake surface, and his body might remain trapped until the spring thaw. By the second week of the search, the lake had started to freeze over, but police continued to search around it, convinced they would find Josh there. Although very little was done over the Christmas break, deputies returned to campus on January 8th, and a dive team was sent in to Gemini Lake, adjacent to the area where Josh was last seen. On his walk from Menton Court to his home, Josh would have crossed a bridge near a culvert leading from Stump Lake to Gemini Lake. Since their extensive search of Stump Lake had yielded no sign of Josh, detectives believed it was possible he could have fallen and ended up in Gemini Lake. Unfortunately, this search was as unsuccessful as all the previous searches. In April, the search for Josh was renewed. His father took time off from work and spent hours kayaking on the campus lakes, praying for answers. He still thought Josh had been abducted, but was keeping an open mind, and there was a knew there was a possibility the lake might finally give up its secrets. He carefully monitored the water temperature each day, but even the warmer water failed to produce any evidence of his son. In May, the Trident Foundation arrived on campus to do their own search of the lakes. Known as the country's leading authority on water search and rescue, they were confident that they would be able to find Josh if he were indeed in the water. They spent days sending divers into the lakes, using specialized equipment to aid them in their search. One by one, they cleared all the bodies of water on campus, and they determined that Josh was not there. Their executive director told police that his recommendation was to to take the search in a different direction. Josh had not fallen into one of the lakes. For Josh's parents, the Trident search simply confirmed what they already knew. Josh was not on campus. Something must have happened to him that night that made it impossible for him to make it home. Detectives were at a loss. They had interviewed everyone who had been on campus that night Josh went missing, and no one had seen or heard anything unusual. They were confident Josh had not staged his own disappearance, and now the idea that he had drowned in one of the lakes seemed to be impossible as well. They were willing to consider the possibility of foul play, but had no evidence pointing in any direction. The investigation stalled. Students at St. John no longer felt as safe as they once had on the isolated campus. There were whispers about what might have happened to Josh, and rumors ran rampant. One centered around the priest that lived in the Abbey on campus. Several of them were known to drink heavily, and some students believed that one of them had been returning to campus at the time Josh was walking back to his apartment and had accidentally run him over, then hid the body to avoid being prosecuted for drunk driving. Although the rumor spread wildly, police found nothing to indicate that there had been any kind of hit and run. A crash violent enough to cause death usually leaves behind small traces of evidence. They had not found any blood or car pieces to indicate Josh had been hit. Despite the efforts of family and friends to keep the investigation going, the case eventually went cold. Sporadic searches continued to be conducted whenever any new tips were called in, but nothing brought police closer to locating Josh. In 2011, Lamar Outdoor Adventures donated two billboards to the family and they were placed along Stearns County Highways to remind people that Josh was still missing. A few tips trickled in, but nothing that advanced the investigation. There has never been any activity on Josh's credit cards and his bank account remains untouched. Detectives monitor his social security number and it has never been used. His disappearance remains one of the greatest mysteries of Minnesota. But police believe there is someone out there who knows what happened to Josh, and can provide this information needed to solve this case and give the family some long-awaited closure. Joshua was 20 years old when he went missing in 2002. He has blonde hair and blue eyes, and at the time of his disappearance, he was 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighed approximately 170 pounds. He has a 4 inch long scar on his shoulder and normally wears glasses or contact lenses. He was last seen wearing a gray hooded sweatshirt and blue jeans. Of course, if you have any information about Josh, you can call the Stearns County Sheriff's Department at 320-259-3700. And before we go, hit that like button if you like our video, subscribe to the channel, hit the bell notification button to be notified of future videos. And if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, bring new hosts, pay them, and hopefully take this show on the road. We'd really love to film live um, episodes from true crime locations across the country, and your support can help make that happen. So as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. Follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash True Crime Never Sleeps. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue all in the Kroger app.